Hello, and welcome to the RSE's Tea and Talk podcast series, a programme inspired by the coffee houses of the 18th century, where great thinkers would come together to discuss ideas and matters of the day. I'm Rebecca Widderfield, and I'm Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, which is Scotland's National Academy. Our mission is to advance learning and make knowledge useful. And to do that, we are holding conversations with some of our fellows and other leading experts in Scotland to talk about important issues and the challenges that we face as a society. You can find out more about our work on our website at rse.org.uk. So today I'm speaking with Professor Graham Watt, CBE. Graham is Emeritus Professor in General Practice at the University of Glasgow and a Fellow of both the Academy of Medical Sciences and the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Graham has written extensively on health inequalities and for over a decade has been involved in the Deep End Project, which looks at working general practices serving the 100 most deprived populations in Scotland. So who better to talk to us on the topic of health inequalities than Graham? Graham, a lot of your career has been focused on exploring and seeking to address health inequalities. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about your background and what was it that really took you into that real focus on health inequalities through your work? Yes, I mean, I don't like being labelled as an expert in health inequalities, but I'll come back to that in, in later on. I'm an Aberdeen medical graduate. Aberdonians are improved by travel, so I've, I've been around quite a bit. I was interested in staying a doctor and doing epidemiology, which was a difficult combination because there was no career structure and I really had to make one up. I was interested in the, in the sort of population approach because of its inclusiveness. And also because the people who weren't included, the non-responders, were always different from the people who did respond. And that was an interesting observation because it, it reflected a process of exclusion from knowledge and from evidence, uh, which I thought was important and I wanted to pursue it. And I, I, I got, the, I got the, the tickets for general practice and hospital medicine, but went to work with uh, Julian Tudor Hart, a well-known GP in South Wales, the author of the Inverse Care Law. I went there as a medical student and thought, gosh, I'm going back there. This chap's imagining and delivering the future with a population approach to working in a village and staying long enough to make a difference. Uh, I got an MD there with community studies of salt restriction, which were astonishing in their levels of engagement and participation. And came back to Scotland, was very lucky to get the chair of general practice at Glasgow University on the casting vote of the principal. Uh, I, I like to think I rewarded his, his, his faith in me. That was Sir, Sir William Kerr Fraser. And then I felt at home, an academic generalist, small department on the periphery of the institution with the opportunity to put some of the things I'd learnt in South Wales with Tudor Hart into effect. And it took a long, a long time, though, to find a bit like rock climbing, finding the next stage mm. uh, to go up. Um, the, the Royal College of GPs were wanting to have a toolkit for GPs to address health inequalities. So there's a working group to talk about that. And we, we made three decisions. One was we wouldn't write a report on health inequalities because there were plenty of them. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't give GPs a toolkit because that would be rather patronising. And the first thing that we would do was listen to what they had to say. We had a meeting at Erskine Hotel 12 years ago this year. We had about 
70% of the 100 most deprived practices represented. The seating plan was a circle, everybody in the front row. Almost everything that was said was included in the report. And it uh, it got us uh, started. It was interesting because I'd done some epidemiology with Matt Sutton down in Manchester, looking at what, in effect, was the epidemiology of the deep end by aggregating general practice populations according to the type of population being served. So you can get the 100 most deprived. And they were, of course, they were scattered all over the place. And you could do that with Scottish data. Uh, but nobody had ever done that in ISD because the questions being asked were always to serve management with its geographical responsibilities. And that meant that deprivation was, was diluted and hidden. And uh, this, this epidemiology that we did was collating practice data wherever they were, providing they were serving a deprived population. And that showed that there was no more GPs in that kind of area than an affluent area. And that got us started on the idea of the, the deep end. Although the deep end metaphor was actually something that Tudor Hart had talked about about 10 years uh, previously. And it, it immediately struck a chord with GPs and their colleagues who were never really getting to the bottom of things, treading water in the deep end, trying to survive. So we have a car, the logo is based on that metaphor. And it's, it's, it's a slightly naughty metaphor because it implies that GPs in the shallow end are, are twiddling their thumbs. And of course, they're very busy dealing with older patients, uh, more educated and demanding patients. Uh, in many ways, their, their, work, their life is more difficult than treating a, a, an undemanding but iller population. Anyway, the attraction for me for the deep end was, you know, there's so many people who write about health inequalities that have no connection with policy or practice. So what they do is, is very little effect. You, you can even see that now with some of the big players in health inequalities. They're, they're not connected with the decisions at local or national level. And that's one of the explanations why the story of health inequalities in Scotland is really one of failure. I can remember being at meetings 30 years ago, very similar to meetings now. And you know, it's not for the lack of data, it's not for the lack of reports. If those were Olympic sports, we would be medalists, you know, because we're very good at producing Scottish reports on health inequalities. But they're getting they're getting they're not getting better. We we compare very poorly with the rest of Europe and the rest of the UK. So although health inequalities are regularly rediscovered by the media, they never ask the question of why is it being rediscovered? You know, uh, th that question never seems to... I think it's because there's, there's no memory in the media of what they reported six months previously. But it is, it is a question, you know. Mm. We, we keep on discovering and reporting and being appalled and making commitments to do something about it. But, I mean, this is a personal view. But I, I think one of the problems has been the, the sort of specialist nature of the discipline by making health inequalities the... The, a subject with its own experts. It's taken non-experts out of the game. And in a sense, that has that is symptomatic of the issue being on the margins, not being mainstream. And I, I think that's one of the explanations why inequalities in health is never a mainstream issue. It's always something that can be done episodically on the side, usually with small projects that don't last long. 
I think that's a, a, a kind of a, a structural problem and an explanation of how, how Scotland has learned to live and accept differences which are not acceptable in other countries. I was going to ask you a little bit later about other countries, but but one of the things that struck me with what you were saying there, Graham, was you've previously commented about the transformation that science has had in terms of our, our understanding of, of the world, but its application being uh, frequently an exercise in, in political choice and, and human values. And that very much mirrors a sentiment that we heard from Dame Professor Anne Glover in an earlier podcast. Mm. But, but, I mean, what do you see as a sort of consequences of that for the delivery of health services and health outcomes? I mean, you, I think you've alluded to the fact that one of the reasons we're not making as much progress as we might be doing in, in addressing health inequalities mm. is because of that sort of um, interface, if you like. So how does that play out for you? Well, I, th- I mean, there has been a, a death of research. Uh, my colleague, uh, Stuart Mercer, who's the director of the Scottish School of Primary Care, I, I describe as the David Livingston of primary care itself, because he's one of the few people who's gone into the sort of dark areas of the healthcare system outside the institutions to describe and explain what's going on. He showed that you know consultations in general practice in deprived areas are generally shorter than in other areas, although the need and complexity are greater. The expectations are lower on both sides of the table. Outcomes are poorer, especially for patients with mental health problems, which is the commonest comorbidity. And the GPs are under stress. And until 2007, when that was published in in an American journal, there'd be nothing like it produced. And it's not that you can't do research in very deprived areas. It's just difficult to do. It hasn't been done. So that's one of the areas. But, But even if you produce the evidence, our experience in the deep end is that the world doesn't automatically fall into place on the basis of the new evidence. If it was a, 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 a drug that was curing a particular disease and, and particularly had a mass market available to, to pharma, it would uh, run like a hare. But this is more, more difficult. I mean, Stuart, my colleague, he did a, a study called Care Plus, which involved longer consultations for patients selected on the basis of GPs knowing that the patient could do with a longer consultation. There was support for the GPs and, and patients as well. But what it, it was a randomized trial, which is almost unheard of in the kind of practices where it took place. And it showed that quality of life, which is the, the outcome measure, you, you can't, the trouble with looking at health inequalities through research is that the, the outcomes are long-term. You know, you're doing things today that might not affect mortality statistics for 20 years. So you, you use soft outcomes. And this study showed that two, two things. One, if you got an extra, if you got extra consultation time, your quality of life improved. But if you didn't, it got worse. So there was, there was two things going on there. And we had a health economist on board, and, and the, the health economy statistics were carried out, which showed that this was an intervention that came well within the nice threshold. It was 13,000 per quality, whereas the, the threshold is 20,000. Now, if if a technology was evaluated with those kind of data, it, it would it would sail into practice, especially if there were interests behind it. But if the, the the intervention is longer consultation time, which means you have to provide more manpower, and that means that it's possibly coming from somewhere else, then you're immediately into 
cultural and political problems. You encounter an establishment of power and resource which is reluctant to, to, to give any of it up. You know, evidence is a, a, a tender plant in the sort of forest that you're trying to negotiate your way through. There are much stronger influences on what decides what happens, uh, including, of course, the inertia of the status quo. Um, we were sidetracked a bit by the first minister saying this would be dealt with in the GP contract. And she didn't know that it couldn't be because the GP contract does two things. It pays GPs and it provides resources for practices. And the um, interfering with the way that GPs are paid is a very tricky path to go down if you're trying to redistribute resources. And what we learned was that, you, that that's a, a non-starter. Uh, you need to find another way of getting resources to where they're needed. It's complicated now because general practice is under pressure, not just because of COVID, but because of, I think, underfunding. And uh, you know, whilst GP manpower in Scotland has been flat for 10 years, the consultant establishment has increased by a sixth. And that's, that's the wrong direction. Uh, we don't need more specialists. We need more people who can... Deal, provide unconditional support for patients, whatever problems they, they, they've, they've got. On, on the advocacy side, I mean, the government has recently announced that they're going to put financial advisors into general practices on the basis of work that we've done, showing that in Parkhead and and Cairntine in Glasgow, this increases the uptake of benefits by people who are entitled to them but haven't claimed. And the average benefit per year for someone who who takes it up is about £7,000. Very few things in medicine help people as much as, as that. But it's taken us five or six years to get that into a policy. And Kate Burton in public health and myself, who've sort of led the lobbying, have been told more than once by civil servants, you know, please stop asking for this. It's not going to happen. And you just, you just have to keep going. and eventually a door opens and you jump through it and it does happen. So what we've learned is that advocacy isn't a sprint, it's a marathon and you just need to be ready for it. So we've, we've, we've made progress on the financial advice. And this, the, the method is, is simple. If you embed the advice in a practice, then you increase uptake because the resource is available locally, quickly, in a familiar place. And uh, it's all based on relationships and it works. So we want lots of people to be embedded in that way because in deprived areas, the referral links need to be local, familiar and quick if they're going to be taken up. Because if, they're, if they involve two bus rides across the city and back again, it's not going to happen. It's reminding me actually of... Um and just interesting how things maybe don't happen as well. And this is this is in the northeast of England, but um, my mother worked for the Citizens Advice Bureau, and they invented yeah. debt service in the GP practice um, in yeah. a very, for very similar reasons, um, and that included about the take up of benefits as well, because yeah. what was coming through from the GP practices had an underlying poverty dimension. Yes, well, that I mean that illustrates a few things. One is that um, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, you know, what we were doing in Glasgow and the deep end uh, had been done previously in Dundee. But the new thing was was to connect all this up, you know, to, to create a bit of collegiality and solidarity between isolated initiatives. Um, 
because the Citizens Rights Bureau is part of the existing establishment. So from our point of view, we, we wanted to get some of the resource for the new Scottish social security system uh, diverted. And in a sense, that was just the same as trying to get resources out of mainstream general practice. People defend what they have. But I remember we had a meeting in Glasgow, a joint meeting with GPs and the advice system in Glasgow, where one of the managers was talking about how because of resource constraints, it was going to be necessary to centralise the offices. Exactly the wrong solution. A, manage, a sensible managerial solution, but a, a bad practical solution, because in what you're essentially doing there is you're taking resources away from where they're needed in, in a community. And I think you've talked quite a bit about um, previously about the sort of the importance of both unconditional and the continuity of care for people. Yeah. And I guess we've seen this um, to some extent with the vaccine uptake as well, actually, the importance of who is giving the messages in terms of trust and local maybe defined different ways but the sort of the importance of the peer community i guess as well as people on the ground who are trusted yes well i think um i'm not sure of, of of data on on that but i think i think most gps will be saying to their patients you know i've got my family vaccinated and that, that tends to be an influential thing to say especially if it's if, it, if it's true um i think that, I mean, trust is often spoke about you can't assume it uh, it has to be earned, and it's based on positive experiences and confidence that they'll be repeated. So a lot of general practice, I think, is about building and positive experiences. And continuity is it's quite a difficult entity to evaluate. Demis Pryor, Gray and Exeter is still trying to do that in a systematic way. It's increasingly difficult to provide continuity with an individual, but with good record-keeping, the essential information can be available. But with, um, with short consultations, if you don't have a memory bank of prior contact and shared knowledge, much less can be achieved. Uh, I, I have often written about the day I spent with Petra Sambale, a, a German doctor in the most deprived practice in Scotland, in Postle Park. From seven in the morning to seven at night, I saw all her patients and they were they were all based on immediate recognition and moving to the neck to a higher level you know there, there was no groundwork to do in knowing the patient's name their background their problem she, she could never have done what she did in a day from a cold start it all had to be based on a moving stream of, of information and uh, when, when i worked with Tudor Hart in South Wales, a key thing of his example, you know, showing over 25 years to premature mortality was 30% lower than the neighbourhood, was staying long enough to make a difference. You know, that's, that's uh, increasingly difficult. The, the, the mega practices, popular in England, there's a few in Scotland, they, they don't provide that. It's a weakness of the system. It's, it's not that everybody needs the same kind of continuity of care. But there's a paper by Rupert Payne that shows that the 10% of people in Scotland with four-plus conditions account for 50% of, prevent, of potentially preventable hospital admissions. So there's a very important minority of patients in whom an investment of time and continuity has the potential to keep them out of hospital for longer. Some of the deep end projects have 
have gone down that road, the Pioneer Project, the SHIP Project. It's always based on the GPs knowing the patients. They know who would benefit from the extra time and who wouldn't. Uh, And, of course, that's drawing on information that only exists in their heads. It's You know, you wouldn't get an MD for it. But uh, that kind of accumulated knowledge of patients is a huge undervalued resource with great efficiencies for the health service. Because if you take it away, you have a whole lot of impersonal consultations, which almost by definition are risk averse, because there isn't the confidence uh, to do anything else. So just just to say a little bit more about the Deep End project. So it's been going since 2009 now, I think. Yeah. It, and and it's, I think you're saying it sort of brings together lots of different projects. But how has the Deep End project supported um, what you're saying earlier about the need for that connection with policy and practice and the need to connect yeah. with evidence with decisions at local and national level? Do you feel do you feel it's made some headway in that regard? Yes, I think it has. It's, 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 a, it's a quite a long story. We, we had some huge examples of good fortune in terms of resource. You know, I had a a new professor of public health was appointed in Glasgow and and pinched my research fellow. And I had 30k that I couldn't spend. And uh, Carol Tannehill, whom you may know, uh, was head of the Glasgow Centre for Population Health. And she gave me permission to use it um, to connect with deep end practices. So we had a a kind of a war chest that allowed us to get GP... we, we, We always paid locum fees to get GPs out of practice for a half-day round table, because otherwise you just get the kind of people who can go to half-day meetings, which is an atypical group. Uh, and that gave us a kind of a, a 30 or 40 reports on particular topics, a manifesto. But it also gave us a network of practices who were ready to engage with opportunities for projects when they arose, you know, pioneership, link workers, uh, financial advisors. And that that gave us projects. The rollout of the projects, link workers have been rolled out. Interestingly, the initial rollout of link workers was on the basis of a, a, a cabinet secretary for health who just thought that it was a good idea. He didn't wait for the evaluation. Uh, we didn't object to that. We thought they were a good idea. Financial advisors, uh, the, the other embedded workers we're still arguing on uh, extra time for consultations, protected time for GPs, embedded mental health workers. You know, there's a tendency of mental health to cut patients off at the neck and just deal with the bits above the neck. And of course, most mental health problems are connected with other issues. So the solution is to embed the mental health workers in practices so that they're available. And there's, there's a good Example of that at Craig Miller Health Centre in Edinburgh, which the Glasgow GPs kind of drool over. They would like to have that arrangement. The main resource has been the sort of energy and enthusiasm, the passion even of the participating GPs. And the deep end is, is essentially a pre-institutional network fueled by passion, connecting people in the same situation for shared activity and shared learning, shared identity, shared voice. And what's been very positive has been the spread of that model initially to Ireland, then to Yorkshire, Humber, then Greater Manchester, and now we've got them in the northeast England, uh, North Cumbria, Nottinghamshire, London, Plymouth. There's a deep end project in Canberra in Australia. 
And there are stirrings in Denmark, Norway, Canada, and even the US. So there is something about the marginality of healthcare in poor areas and the sort of exclusion of, of, of patients that isn't particularly Scottish. It's kind of ubiquitous. Because the if healthcare left to its own will naturally specialize, centralize, privatize. All directs all moves in the wrong direction in terms of the multimorbidity that we, we face. So that I think that's why there's common cause across the deep end projects. And we've we've I think that the main success has been almost sort of creating a resistance movement. Mm. You know, uh, the government has been very good to us in Scotland. Uh, they've always given us a core budget, which we, because because we, had, because we had no address or, or or infrastructure, the RCGP had to handle the money. But that that allowed us to have meetings and pay locum fees, uh, have occasional conferences. We were always outside the local NHS. Oh, it was always a difficult relationship because mm. we were we were across boundaries. And we weren't beholden to them. It was it was an enormous strength actually to be outside the system. Mm-hmm. Eventually, it was a weakness because you want the system to change. If well, a principle of sustainability is that there has to be joint ownership, and if you haven't built that in at the beginning, it's quite difficult to add it on later on. But the, the new chair of the Scottish Deep End Project is uh, Kerry Lunan, a GP at Craig Miller in Edinburgh. Uh, who was previously the chair of RCGP Scotland. And she has brought the whole thing up to a new level of engagement with policy. And I think that's not before time. It's very encouraging. I mean, you, you talked earlier about um, the sort of the rediscovery of, of inequalities, if you like. And, and I think sometimes it feels a bit, a bit like that with COVID, that COVID has sort of rediscovered or the media has rediscovered and shone a light on and, and amplified e- existing inequalities or the pandemic itself has amplified existing inequalities. I, I mean, in terms of um, health inequalities, has, has there been anything that has particularly surprised you in the way that the pandemic has played out across different communities and sections of the society? Or, or has it been, from your perspective, actually fairly predictable in terms of what has happened on the back of a, of a, of a shock like a, a pandemic? Perhaps one of the surprises down south has been the, the extent to which it's affected Asian doctors. Mm. You know, almost all of the deaths in doctors have been Asians. I'm not sure whether that's because of the jobs they have or susceptibility or living in communities where there's quite crowded family living. I, I, I don't know. I think in terms of it is obviously a colossal problem on top of the you know the existing landscape which hasn't gone away. And when COVID gradually fades, the problems that it leaves are all going to be compounding the problems that we really weren't dealing with very well beforehand. And that includes you know the mental health consequences, uh, especially allied with the financial hit which hasn't really started yet. And there's the there's the move to remote consulting. Initially, it was either phone or video. I think video has been put to one side largely. But being able to consult, you know, phone consulting has got a place. It's it's good for some things. It's not good for other things. And it certainly can't replace the face-to-face consultation, especially for this group of patients with multimorbidity in, in spades. You know, the, Multimorbidity for an epidemiologist is just two conditions. 
Well, the commonest condition in an old person is high blood pressure, so you only need one other thing to be multimorbid. But that's a completely different issue for the patient and the doctor from the kind of multimorbidity that occurs on average 10 to 15 years earlier in poor areas. And is I, mean, I, I characterise it by the number, complexity, severity and continuing nature of health and social problems within families because there, there are no data that capture that. The interesting thing about COVID is you know, it takes something like COVID to create the circumstances for a rediscovery of collectivism and social solidarity. You certainly, you know, and the idea that nobody's safe unless everybody's safe. And the best way of protecting your family is for all families to be protected. It takes something like COVID to get us back to that. But I'm not sure to what extent it's going to have a transformational effect. People talk about things not being the same again, but there's a sense in which we are returning to where we were, not trying to reimagine the, the future. So, Graham, you were talking there about actually how the pandemic might have stimulated a, a new sense of collectivism. Um, and I guess collectivism also com- connects with compassion, which you've also you know, quite often spoken about in terms of its import- importance in terms of how people are treated within the health system and, and more widely. Can you can you say a little bit more about that and, and why it's so critically important, you feel, for, for health outcomes? Well, my, my, there's a study by uh, Stuart Mercer, again, based on 3,000 GP consultations uh, in Scotland. And it included two instruments. One was his care measure, a 10-question instrument, which asked the patient, about the doctor's perceived empathy. You know, did, did the doctor care, knew who you were, listen, etc., etc. He, he narrowed it down to 10 questions. And he also asked uh, John Howie, Professor John Howie's patient enablement instrument, which is after seeing the doctor, are you better able to cope with life and your condition? And what Stuart showed in this study was that you could get empathy without enablement, but you never got enablement without empathy. If the patient thought that you didn't care, whatever that meant to the patient, then they were unlikely to feel empowered by anything else you said to them. It's almost a black and white observation. And it's enormously important because it, it makes the point that uh, you know, the silver bullet in general practice is a relationship. And as Tudor Hart said, it starts face to face and it only shifts gradually to side by side because self-help and self-management aren't starting points in with patients who lack knowledge and confidence and, and agency. So that's that's an essential part of the building block, if you like, of, of the patient experience and story. So we, we talk about the need for three building programs, none of them based on bricks and mortar or fancy architecture. And the first one is building a compendium of patient narratives. That's what happens at present, and nobody knows whether the patient stories are, you know, long stories or short stories or fairy stories or horror stories. If you made it your business to find out, you'd find out examples of them all. So that's one set of relationships. Another is building the capacity of the local care system around the general practice hub, because uh, general practice has the intrinsic properties of contact, continuity, coverage, flexibility, uh, and trust. And it's not the only public service that has those features, but it's by a long way the public service which has them in most degree. And most other services 
are weaker for not having the contact, the continuity, the coverage, and the trust. So that's why bringing other people next to the practice, embedding them, is a, a sensible move. And it's, it's not because doctors are necessarily the best people to lead or to be certainly not to be in control, but they do have the contact and the knowledge, and that's the, that's a starting point for lots of, of things. And the third building program is to connect these local systems so that we're not dealing with isolated pioneering examples, but we're talking about extraordinary people. We're talking about something that is extraordinary in its nature, but not through its content, if you can accept that. So that needs infrastructure to build the connections, to share learning and experience. And specialist medicine in hospital has that infrastructure in large measure, but general practice, primary care, it's much more diffuse. So I suppose one of the advantages, the plus side of COVID, is that we've learned to connect much more effectively electronically. So the deep end has always benefited from being able to connect electronically with practices and therefore to have communications which we wouldn't normally have been able to, to have. So these are all types of relationship that need to be built up. And the difficulty is that you there's a, a, a time cost, perhaps other costs, to build up relationships. They take time, they take an investment of emotional energy. How many of these can you do at one time? So it's not an overnight thing. It's a, a cultural thing over a period of, of time. When you asked about compassion, I, I, I would link compassion to caring. In, in Tudor Hart's sense, caring is giving a damn. You know, it's not a soft emotional thing. It's the, it's the opposite of indifference. And that, that's a worrying sign in the health service when people are so overwhelmed that their coping mechanism is to be indifferent to the patients in front of them. So that's a really a red flag of a warning sign when indifference starts to creep creep in. Another aspect of I had a PhD student, Rhiannon Babel, who came from Oregon, come back to Colorado, but she spent the interim interviewing deep end GPs in Glasgow, not necessarily just the ones in the project, but randomly uh, she baked them cookies which is a really smart thing to do uh, to get their cooperation and, and she discovered in a study neatly showed that every GP is interested in the clinical consultation but not all of them are looking outside the consultation to the social factors that are going on in the background not all of them see the community as a resource that they want to connect with and not all not all of them see you know, the social and political trends being played out in front of them through the lives of their patients and wanting to do something about it. So I wouldn't argue for a minute that every GP wants to be engaged in the way that deep end GPs are, but they're an important and growing minority. And the, ch the challenge is to normalise what is currently abnormal and extraordinary, which sometimes just requires connecting people the attraction of the deep end has been that it, it, uh, everybody was in the same boat and they immediately knew that and they'd never been in a boat before. The first deep end conference was the first time the most deprived GPs in Scotland had ever been convened or consulted by anybody. That's something in itself, doesn't it? Well, yeah, we thought, Gus, is this, is this going to be um, the first meeting? Is this going to be another meeting where GPs uh, whine and complain and are negative about everything? Uh, so we, we we organized it that there was nobody else at the meeting that they could complain to. Uh, it was unnecessary because the first meeting was immediately on the front foot 
immediately positive and never look back. Uh, I've always found that in speaking in other places. There's a letter from uh, a Dublin GP, Edel McGinnity, saying that when she read our stuff, she felt like a patient who'd found a, a support group, you know, because her work in Dublin was the same as work in, in Postle Park and in your house in Edinburgh. Which also, I guess, connects with resilience and what you're saying earlier about when people, you know, get to a point of indifference because that's a, a coping mechanism because they're overwhelmed with with what they're seeing and experiencing. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, looking maybe into into the future, you know, we say 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, you've talked about obviously COVID compounding some of the existing inequalities and the impacts of COVID, you know, sort of falling on top of those existing inequalities. But where do you see the trajectory as we move forward? Are we on a trajectory of in- improvement and narrowing inequalities and narrowing health inequalities, or is there more we should be doing? I mean, how, how I guess how positive do you feel about the about the future, Graham? I feel the gosh, there's a, there's a Palestinian expression, a pessimist, optimist, you know, which combines the two, uh, which is appropriate in, in 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 some ways. I think I'm 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 very positive about the colleagues that I've met through the Deep End project and the way that it's growing. I'm I'm not positive about the system as it is. I think that's unlikely to reform itself. It's got a number of challenges to take on. One is to stop thinking of health inequalities as something that's marginal and on the side that you that you can deal with a small project, but it's actually a mainstream issue. Because the although you can highlight the big social differences between the top and bottom decile. There are also differences between the most deprived decile and the next decile and the next decile. That's why Michael Marmot argues about proportional universalism, uh, needs according to proportion. And that's a big policy step because uh, the, the distribution of healthcare resources in hospital, it meets that, but in primary care, it, it, it doesn't. So the, the, the challenge of mainstreaming it to make it proportionally universal is a big issue. And I don't know whether there's a political party bold enough to do that, certainly not before an, a referendum. That's unlikely to be the, 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 the case. But I think that is the, the challenge. We've lived with health inequalities for so long and accepted them that you know the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior what's what's to say that we aren't going to be here in 20 years time and we'll be trying to explain it away again i think that uh, the big question mark for me is whether we're on the cusp of something you know post covid maybe maybe with independence i don't know it's difficult to imagine it without independence uh, but that takes us into another Area entirely. I think that is the big challenge because you know there's there's COVID, there's climate change, there's the health inequality that results from social and economic division. These are all huge challenges. Um, they're going to require um, policies based on the notion that nobody is protected unless everybody is protected. You know, the, the vaccine rollout is is the immediate test of that. Not sure that the test is being is being passed very well, but if we can't pass that test, how are we going to pass the climate test? There's there's a a, a strap line we put under a poster of deep end logos that inclusive healthcare uh, by excluding exclusions and building relationships is 
a civilizing force in an increasingly dangerous, fragmented and uncertain world. And I, I subscribe to that, that it is a civilizing force because of its inclusivity. So many things are exclusive, being excluded from care services, being excluded from the evidence base, excluded from edu education. You know, increasingly, uh, the world is becoming a dark place based on division and exclusion and demonization of the other. And uh, the only hopeful prospect is to find ways of being more inclusive, I think. And it, it, the Deep End Project is a worked example of trying to do that, a small example. But, uh, so I, I think it's part of part of that. And, and it, it, for, for the participants, I think it, it not only chimes with what they're doing, but it connects them with something larger than themselves, which I think is a, a very important part of professional morale. Autonomy is important. Competence is important. But being part of something bigger than yourself is also important. And I suppose to some extent, I'm being disparaging of the existing institutions which used to provide that covering thing. But I think I think we're, we're in, in dire need of institutions that aren't past their cell by date and are reflecting future needs, not, not past histories. And, and if you look, look um, globally, are there any countries that you think are getting this right? Or that, I mean, clearly from what you said, there's a there's a huge amount of learning in Scotland that we can learn from and a huge amount of learning that we can apply to practice and, and policy. But when you look around the world, and if you were talking to politicians, are there particular countries you would be saying, go and look at X? To some extent, if where you are is having looked, looking, having to deal with health inequalities, then you're already behind the game. Uh, you know, all, all the work on the Gini coefficient, which shows is a measure of the distribution within societies. So if you look at averages, that hides the, the range. And the UK is not well placed in Europe or amongst economically advanced countries in terms of its Gini coefficient. Most of the countries in Northern Europe are better placed in that respect. And that's because they have more generous and more fair uh, social policies. You know, their, their, their educational provision, their, their unemployment support, their uh, maternity support, uh, their pension levels are all at a different level from the UK, which is much more in tune with the US, you know, that, that kind of a, a approach. So one doesn't have to look very far, but what one's looking for is not examples of successfully dealing with health inequality. You're looking for successful examples of inclusive, generous and fair policies which result in less societal difference. Uh, and then you don't, you don't have the same problem to solve. And, and there is something to borrow from uh, the US, and that's a quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., who used to be a chief justice, and above the, the, the entrance to the um, Inland Revenue in, in Washington, it, they've chiseled in stone this quote that taxes are the price we pay for a civilised society. You know, And you, as people have often said, you can't have Scandinavian or Northern European levels of service with US levels of, of tax. That takes me actually to, to my last question. And you've touched on this in, in, in some ways already, but, um, you know, if, if you were going to point to two or three things as having the potential to, to transform 
health inequalities or actually indeed inequalities more general generally I mean you've talked about finding ways to be inclusive and looking at the system but it, and you've just then talked about taxes other particular things you know if you could just do two or three things what what is it you would you would do if you could make wave, wave a magic wand um I think in this in this, in this I was asked this question at a, a student conference in, in the Wales recently and I, I, and I, I my answer was the financial advisor project you know that puts gives people money in their pockets but that's a very short term solution for individuals so it's not the bigger question um i think that there's a a quote from anoiran bevan who's a sort of political instigator of the national health service and he was i've never been able to find it i wrote it down at the time but i can't find the source but what he said was that or wrote was that he never argued from statistics this was in the 1950s when there was much fewer statistics um, and his argument was that whatever statistics he used, somebody else could find other statistics that would say the opposite. So his his line was he argued on principle. And once you won the argument on principle, everything else followed. Um, I'm not sure how exactly that translates uh, 70 years later. But I think the, the, the principle that I think he's talking about is that some value-based decisions need to be taken. And uh, statistics can inform those judgments, but they can't necessarily make them. And I think the NHS was a decision of that type. It was a value-based commitment to inclusiveness and to simplicity in the sense that if everybody's included, you don't have to assess them at the point of entry, a very important and simple uh, procedure. There are things like, um, you know, the, the, the food rationing in World War Two, where if everybody food wasn't rationed in one sense it was rationed in the sense that everybody got the same and that was found subsequently to have been beneficial for the public health it wasn't based on evidence it was based on the value of our inclusiveness and more recently the current government has established the baby box scheme and i've often been asked you know, where's the evidence for that well i think if if, if you're looking for grade a randomized controlled trial evidence of effectiveness, then you'll, you'll be disappointed. But I, I'm very much in favour of the Baby Box Initiative because of the values that it communicates, which is that every newborn child matters and that everybody is on the same boat. And I, I think that's worth investing in from a public policy point of view uh, and to wait to see what the effects are. long time ago and more recently, I think there are some examples of things that need to be done because they're the right thing to do. You know, and perhaps perhaps we have some politicians who can do that. I don't know. There are plenty who can't, I'm sure of that. But maybe there are some. I think that thread of inclusivity has, has really, um, well, inclusivity and making a difference, I think, has, has run throughout sort of this conversation today. And um, yeah. just thank you very much, Professor Graham Watford. Well, when, when, I, when I did my uh, inaugural lecture in 94, uh, it was called Include me out to exclude you in. You know, include me out is a quote from Daniel Zanuck, the Hungarian film producer that couldn't speak English. So that was, he said, include me out. So I, I added exclude me in. But that was, I just reminded about it the other day, but that was what I went into the department with my sort of vision. And it's very much to do with uh, inclusivity. And I, and I mentioned it to a great aunt of mine who was 100 at the time, uh, Dr. Dorothy Uni in St Andrews, and she said that's very general practice. <laughs> so I liked very much. But very, 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 very necess necessary. Um, thank yeah. you so much, Professor Graham Watt, for talking to us today about health and health inequalities. Well, thank you. Thank you.
for listening. You can find previous Tea and Talk episodes on our website, rse.org.uk, or you can subscribe on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. For our latest news, details of events and activities, search for the Royal Society of Edinburgh on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube.